Well, hey everyone, uh, it's time to get to know our speaker for Night Church a little bit better. Now, I know her pretty well, so I thought I'd ask a couple of questions. Uh, so, Andy, can you tell us uh, who you are and maybe who's in your family? Well, as she said, my name is Andy. I am married to Stu. And uh, beyond that, I have a mum and a dad who live in the eastern suburbs. And I have a brother who uh, lives up in Queensland and he's a pilot. Uh, and it's Mother's Day. Do you have any uh, kind of stories about you and your mum that you can uh, let everyone know? I have heaps of stories um, that involve me and my mum, uh, but I'll just pick one. So about 10 years ago, we were traveling through the country of Jordan and we visited the ancient city of Petra. And there was a gentleman there who kind of took a shine to me and he offered my mum three racing camels in exchange for me uh, to come back and marry him in Jordan. Um, and I kind of thought she was going to brush him off, but she actually, you know, started to barter with him, um, try and get the best price, um, jokingly, of course. And, uh, yeah, from that experience, I learned that not only am I worth three racing camels, but also that my mum can get a bargain out of pretty much anyone at any time. That's good. I'm glad that she only charged me two racing camels to marry you. Um, can you tell us, uh, what you do during the week? Uh, so during the week, I, I work a couple of days um, at a Christian legal think tank called Freedom for Faith. And what we do is work to protect um, and promote religious freedom in Australia. Uh, and then for the other days of the week, I um, hang out with a bunch of people at St. Matt's. I read the Bible with a, uh, a few ladies. Um, I go to youth group um and yeah generally hang out with you Stu. yeah potter around the house at the moment that's all we go down the road and get a coffee yeah um and how have you been coping with kind of coronavirus madness um well i think like anybody it's been a bit of a challenge um i'm a really big extrovert and so this is you know kind of been the least amount of people time i've ever had um but i think introvert and extrovert alike we're all kind of struggling with this time um I'm very thankful that we get to have people over um, in small number. Um, yeah, but I've also been really thankful that this has been a time for Stu and I to get to know each other with lots of time um, early on in our married life and also some time for me to uh, learn new skills and, you know, pick up some old hobbies that maybe I've let go a bit. Cool. Uh, well, I hope you got to know Andy a bit more. Uh, we're going to hear from her in just a sec, but we'll hear the Bible reading first. Hi everyone, my name's Catherine. I have the pleasure of reading the Bible tonight. So please join with me. Please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter one. So I'll give you a moment to open your Bibles. 1 Samuel chapter one. There was a certain man from Ramiatham, a Zophite from the hill country of Ethraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ethraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penenu. Penenu had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penenu and to all her sons and daughters. 
But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord, and she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favour in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. When the man Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfil his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, Elkanah, her husband told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephra of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When they had slaughtered the bull, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, As surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. When I was younger, I loved to learn. 
I still do. But something that I used to do when I was a kid that hopefully I don't do anymore is fixate on particular topics, whatever I was interested in at that point in time. At the end of a big day of learning as many facts as I could, I would sit down at the dinner table and absolutely unleash on my poor family. It got so bad that at one point, my parents instituted a ban on me speaking about certain topics. Here's a snapshot of what made it to the embargoed list. The continent of Antarctica. The French Horn. Queen Elizabeth I. Queen Elizabeth II. The American Founding Fathers. And outer space. And after this list got to a certain length, I started to question if it was okay for me to bring up whatever fact I had just learned. I started to ask myself, is this piece of information important to the person that I am speaking to? Now, to be honest, this was a lesson that I needed to learn. But it got me thinking, is this the way that we sometimes approach talking to God? Are there certain topics on the banned list? Some things that he's just not interested in hearing about or maybe interested in hearing about again? Is it just the small things? The things of my life? Or is it also the big stuff? Maybe God just isn't interested in my life at all. Tonight we're looking at the first chapter of 1 Samuel, which is a book mainly about three men. The prophet Samuel, Saul, Israel's disastrous first attempt at a king, and David, the man after God's own heart. But the book doesn't start there. The book starts on this really small and really personal level, not in a palace, but in a home not with like a military conflict, but a domestic one. Not with a war, but with a womb. This grand story of how Israel receives a king, how her enemies are defeated, how God's kingdom rule is established, begins with Hannah, a woman who was unable to conceive. And so right from the get-go, we're faced with the question of what Hannah's story has to do with the story unfolding around her. And on this Mother's Day, what does a story of kings and kingdoms have to do with a woman who just desperately wanted to be a mum? Why does she matter? And you know, I think that this is a question that we often ask, not of Hannah, but of our own lives. What does our situation, our story, have to do with the greater story unfolding around us? Do we matter to God? King David pondered this very question when he looked up at the night sky and asked God, why do you care about us? He said, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is humankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Chances are that at some point you've asked yourself this very question, even, you know, if you've used different words. Can the God who spins galaxies into place, who 
speaks the universe into existence? Can that God really care about me and care about my life? If God has massive plans to reconcile all things to himself, then where do the things of my little life fit? My childlessness, my frustrations with ISO life, my uncertainty at work, my difficulties at uni, my financial hardships, my desire for a spouse, for reconciliation, my heartbreak? What would it mean for you if you were able to see that your story is part of a much greater story? What would it mean to you if you knew that the Lord Almighty cared about the particulars of your life and that when it comes to talking to him, nothing is on the banned list? This is what we're going to consider tonight as we examine the story of one of the great women of faith and about how our big God works in little lives. So I'm going to pray for us as we do that. So why don't you join me? Our great God and loving Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit amongst us now to do with us as he sees us fit. And we ask this for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible handy, look with me at 1 Samuel 1 verse 2. Elkanah had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. So right from the start, we get a picture of Hannah's situation. She's in a polygamous marriage to a man who loves her, but who perhaps doesn't love her enough because he probably went out and married another woman who could give him children. And she has a sister wife, a rival who hates her. And each year, when the family went up to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice, verse 7 says, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Okay, this is a picture of being pushed to the absolute limit, of being pushed to an anguish that robbed Hannah of her appetite. I have two amazing grandmothers, both of whom have the spiritual gift of feeding people. And when I was growing up, uh, whenever I was upset or anxious, their first response would be to say, eat something. As if, you know, the antidote to all of life's problems was food. And look, I'm not complaining. But sometimes there are moments when we are so troubled that we don't even, we can't even bear the sight of food. And this was certainly the case for Hannah, who was engaged in this never-ending battle with her rival. Twice, the narrator repeats the phrase year after year. Like he just drums up this picture of hopelessness, of no light at the end of the tunnel. Until Hannah bore a child, Panina just would not stop. Now, barrenness or infertility is a terrible problem at any time and in any place. And chances are that there are some of you listening now for whom this issue strikes very close to home. And because of that, this Mother's Day might actually be a really difficult one or a really sad one. But to be barren in the ancient Near East kind of presented its own unique challenges. 
because simply put, having children was a matter of survival. See, children were important for three main reasons. Children looked after you when you were old or widowed. Children, mainly boys, grew up to serve in the army to protect the country. And children were a sign of spiritual blessing. Psalm 127 says, Children are a heritage from the Lord. Offspring are a reward from him. And so if a woman had children, especially lots of children, she was seen as a success. And if she couldn't have children, she was seen as a failure. And while we aren't told exactly what Penina was saying to Hannah, what it amounted to was, you're a failure. You're worthless. You have no value. Now, unfortunately, there are plenty of women in the world uh, today for whom their value is tied up in their ability to conceive. But for us in the modern West, this isn't really an issue anymore. But you can bet that our society still holds up some people as successful and others as failures. We've just substituted fertility for other things. Now, to be successful is to be sexually liberated, to be fiercely independent, to be materially wealthy. And your value, your worth, is tied up in looking like this or having this or doing this or being this. And if you don't or if you aren't, then you're seen as a failure. Now, I expect that for some of you, you know this all too well. But for others, you don't regularly experience the sting of being a cultural failure. But what I want to ask you is, if you're in Hannah's shoes, if year after year you were told you were worthless by your own family, what would you do? What would your response be? Well, Hannah's response is to pray. Look with me at verse 9. When they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Okay, despite being repeatedly bludgeoned with the reminder of her infertility, Hannah gets up. Okay, she's ready to do something, to take action. And what does she do? She goes to God. She pours out her soul to the Lord with deep anguish and weeping. You know how people draw a comparison between crying and ugly crying? This was kind of like that. Hannah wasn't praying, she was ugly praying. And this wasn't, you know, just seen in her tears, but in the fact that Eli the priest, when he sees her, he thinks that she's drunk. But what I want for us to focus on is this remarkable transformation that occurs between verse 10, when she's weeping bitterly, and verse 18 when her face is no longer downcast. See, at, at the beginning of her prayer, she's in deep sorrow. And at the end, she's at peace. So what's happened? Now, the remarkable thing here is that nothing has changed. It's not like she's become pregnant in the time that she was praying. So what's going on? Well, in prayer, Hannah has received the assurance that God, who's not just the Lord Almighty, the one who is sovereign over all things, she's been assured that he is mercifully and intimately involved 
in her life. See, in verse 11, she says, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son. See, on one hand, Hannah affirms that God is the king of the universe. Okay, he can fix her situation if he wants to. He is a big God. But straight away, she also affirms that this God, this big God, would stoop low to look on her misery. She asks God to remember her. And this is important. Hannah's pain and her suffering, her barrenness, were the context of her prayer. That's what you know, caused her to pour out her soul to the Lord. But it wasn't the content of her prayer. See, the content of her prayer was God himself. She doesn't get on her knees and say, God, if you'd only give me a son, my suffering would end, which, you know, was, would probably, was probably true. She says, remember me, the evidence of which would be a son. Do you see the difference? As I've been reflecting on this passage this week, this is what has challenged me the most. Because I was forced to ask myself, how many times do I get on my knees and I pray to God, fix this? And how many times do I get on my knees and pray to seek his face? Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray about our problems or about our suffering. Of course we should. God commands that we do. But first and foremost, our prayers should be centred on God himself. Why? Because as Hannah demonstrates, knowing him is far more precious than even those good things that we long for. So deep did this truth take hold that Hannah was able to give up the son that the Lord eventually gave her. Okay, she was able to give back to God what God had given. Hannah is changed by the peace that comes from knowing that the Lord Almighty remembers her. After Hannah is blessed with her son Samuel and after she gives him up to the service of the Lord, she prays again. In fact, she bursts out into a song of praise to God. And as we consider this second prayer of Hannah, I want us to see two main things. Okay, the first is that Hannah has gained perspective to see that God is working out his story in hers. Okay, if you have 1 Samuel 2 open in front of you, cast your eyes over Hannah's prayer. What you may have noticed is that none of it is about her. It's pretty much all about God. True, Hannah sings about how God has cared for her, but she sees her experience as one small piece in the puzzle of the bigger picture of God's deliverance. A plan that includes her, yes, but it also goes beyond her. See, God is so good and so big that he is both able to take us and use us for his plans and purposes and care about us at the same time. See, that's, that's what Romans 8 teaches us, isn't it? That in all things, 
God works for the good of those who love him according to his purpose. See, Hannah sings because she has gained the perspective to see that her story is also God's story. But not only that, she's also able to discern the pattern of how that story will play out. See, as Hannah prays, she sings of the profound reversals that will occur in God's kingdom. The poor will be raised up, but the wicked will be silenced. The humble will be protected, but the proud will be broken. Verse after verse, she sings about how in the kingdom of God, weakness, not strength, is a commodity. Now in the context of the book of 1 Samuel, this anticipates not just that God would raise up the king that Israel was so desperate for, but how he would raise up that king. There wouldn't be Saul who maybe looked the part but didn't act it. It would be a shepherd boy who faces giants with rocks. But stepping outside of the book, this is the pattern of how God builds his kingdom at all times and places. And it's nowhere clearer than in the way that King Jesus comes to earth and saves us. A king who welcomed sinners, not the righteous, who was anointed not by oil, but by tears, and who was coronated not on a throne, but on a cross. The reason that the book of Samuel starts with a barren woman is because God will always use the barren, the weak, the hopeless, and the humble to build his kingdom. And ultimately, it is the Lord Jesus who personally personifies the reality that out of death and barrenness comes life and hope. That the first will be last, but the last will be first. There will be lots of barrenness in our lives, whether literal or otherwise. But we have this assurance. If we are lowly and mocked, if we suffer or if we long for, It is not an indication that we are rejected by God. If your life has not gone according to your plan, this does not mean that God's plan for you and your life has been thwarted. And you know, we have access to a greater assurance than even Hannah did. I was struck when reading our passage that when Hannah poured out her soul to the Lord, Eli the priest saw her from his seat at the door of the synagogue. And he said to her, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. But for us today, at this very moment, Jesus Christ, our great high priest, is not sitting at the door of St. Matt's looking out over the Corso with failing eyesight. He is sitting at the right hand of his father in heaven and he forever lives to intercede for you. Be encouraged that as Jesus Christ rules in heaven, his concern is you and the particulars of your life. And in light of this, it's right that we ask ourselves, does our prayer life reflect this? Do we pray like Jesus is enthroned in heaven? Or do we pray as if he's still dead? Do we hide things from God? Consider some things unimportant to pray about? Or maybe we only pray about our problems. 
From Hannah's example, we learn that it's right to cry out to God for those things that we long for. But we also learn that to have God remember us is infinitely more valuable than anything this world affords. And so the question is, how might we go about praying like this? Well, I have three quick tips for us as we wrap up. The first thing is pray other people's prayers, especially the Psalms. In the Bible, we have heaps of pre-written prayers that are also yours to pray. Now, of course, you don't have to, but I have found pre-written prayers one of the easiest and best ways for me to pray God-focused prayers. As well as the Psalms, you could check out the Anglican Book of Common Prayer um, or my personal favourite, the Puritan Valley of Vision. Uh, Tip number two, before you have asked God for anything, declare who he is. Be specific about the God you are addressing. Hannah prayed, Lord Almighty, which assured her of his sovereignty over her life. One of my old lecturers once told me that he used to read the Bible with a Christian mate and um, eventually this guy ended up walking away from the faith. And one of the things that uh, my lecturer noticed is that when they got together to pray, he started off praying Heavenly Father and then he prayed Lord and then he prayed God and then he just stopped praying. By reminding ourselves who we are praying to, We shape the rest of our prayers, but not only that, we shape our heart. And finally, last tip, sing your prayers. We're all pretty much children of the Enlightenment, and one of the consequences of that is that our society emphasises reason and truth over goodness and beauty. But there is a reason that the Bible includes so many songs, and that's because The truth very rarely takes hold in our hearts without engaging our affections. And so in light of that and following Hannah's lead, I'm going to finish up this evening with one very simple encouragement. Brothers and sisters, stand and sing.